Hi, this is Toby. I hope you're enjoying your summer. While you've got your feet up relaxing on the beach, uh, here's a fascinating episode for you about the contribution of scientific expertise to resolving conflict situations. I just want to let you know that in this episode we talk a bit about Spanish politics. And this conversation was recorded just before the most recent Spanish elections. So nothing really significant depends on it. It's not like it's all obsolete or anything. But you will hear a couple of moments where we talk about quote, the current Spanish government. Uh, and you should understand that to mean the previous Spanish government or the one that's still kind of hanging on now by its fingernails. Whether Spain will still have a socialist government by the end of this month, or indeed by the end of me speaking this sentence, is a bit unclear. But uh, despite all that, as I say, the actual content of our discussion is still very current and very interesting. So enjoy. Hello and welcome to the Science for Policy podcast. My name is Toby and today I'm joined by Professor Mark Sanjomi Calvet. Mark is Assistant Professor of Political Theory at Universitat Pompeu Fabra in Barcelona, where he studies democracy and especially questions of federalism, secession, cultural justice and social justice. He's also been a visiting researcher at Edinburgh University in Scotland and Laval University in Quebec. You might notice a common theme here. And finally, he's recently been appointed by the President of Catalonia to lead a committee of political and legal experts to examine and advise on the question of Catalonia's independence from Spain. So, Mark, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Toby. Good morning. Hello. So I'm slightly, let's say I have a little trepidation about venturing into the topic of political independence and secession, which has always been a, a red-hot potato, actually, in both the countries that have lived in Britain and Belgium. But it sounds like you revel in this, frankly, judging not only by your chosen field of study, but also by the particular places you've lived and worked. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so I, I have always been studying this this topic, uh, well, questions of self-determination, territorial politics and, and federalism. So when, when the government approached me and they proposed me to, to coordinate or preside this, this, uh, this academic committee, that's basically my topic. So, <laughs> yeah. It must be an interesting area to develop an academic expertise in, especially in Barcelona, where you're surrounded by people who presumably all have very strong personal views about it. Yeah, yeah, of course. This happens with many topics, I think. But of course, during the last years, this has been an issue, like the central issue of Catalan politics and part of the Spanish politics. So yeah, uh, working on on that in this in this context is always it's always a challenge. At the same time, it's important, I think, to as a university professor, also as an intellectual, to deal with topics that 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 worry people and that are part of the of the political debate. Yeah, very interesting. So since you've mentioned the Catalonian situation in particular, could you give us a, a quick overview of, of the history of this issue in Catalonia? Yeah, well, this, this is almost impossible in a, in a, in a, in a short... Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, um, 
try. Well, Catalonia is 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 is, a, is an old uh, nation of of Europe, an old national community. In the 19th century, uh, there were, uh, let's say, the first nationalist movements in in Catalonia, uh, politically articulated, uh, in in the modern sense of of the word. So since then, Catalan nationalism has been struggling to basically to 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 build self-government institutions and self-rule on the Catalan ter- territory. Uh, Within the context of the Spanish Kingdom, uh, Spain is a is a third wave democracy. If we follow uh, Samuel Huntington's uh, expression, uh, so the democratization, the democratization of Spain has always always came hand in hand with uh, the articulation of this uh, territorial uh, diversity, and in, in meaning that in Catalonia. Uh, since the times of um, the first Spanish Republic and then the second Spanish Re- and then the second Spanish Republic and so on, democratization has always come with uh, with a self-rule and self-government demand. So, so it's a long history. Uh, it's not a recent conflict. It's it's an old conflict, a, a historical conflict. We can even trace back these self-government demands to the medieval times when there were different kingdoms in Spain and and the king the kingdom of Aragon and Catalonia. Catalonia uh, had a, a different institutional setting compared to the to the Castilian kingdom and so on and so forth. In a few words, this is not a recent conflict. This is an old conflict that has a, um, a very deep historical and institutional roots. Mm, and maybe it's just my, as it were, newcomer's perspective, but it seems like recently, like during my adult life, it's become a somewhat livelier debate than it has been before that. Yeah, during the last, uh, let's say, the last decade or the last almost 20 years now, there has been a, a very salient conflict in, in Catalonia that I think that culminated with this uh, unilateral referendum in 2017 and the declaration of, of, of independence that followed this, this referendum. That was like the, the high point of this, uh, of this escalation and this uh, territorial tension. Uh, since, the, since the establishment of, of democracy in, in, in Spain in 1978, the Spanish constitution uh, was, an, was an agreement between different factions, the factions coming from the dictatorship, basically, and the pro-democracy alliances in, in, in Spain. And within this pro-democracy movement, there was a very strong demand from Catalonia and from other territories, in, from other uh, minority nations in Spain, such as the Basque and the, and the Galician ones, that were at that time considered, the, let's say, the historical communities, besides the Spanish nation, of course, uh, that were articulated in the Spanish constitution. And, and, the, and the deal or the agreement in this constitutional moment in 1978 was a, a sort of dynamic decentralization. So Spain was a very, a very peculiar case of democratization and decentralization at the same time. And this decentralization process, this decentralization process was complex and very long. Uh, it took, uh, it took nearly 20 years to complete uh, the whole map of autonomous communities in Spain. And nowadays we have a more or less homogeneous map of 17 autonomous communities and two uh, autonomous cities in Northern Africa. And this map of, uh, of the, the decentralized, decentralized Spain came with a lot of, uh, let's say, political agreements uh, between the main political parties in Spain, statewide parties, the conservatives and the socialists, but also between the conservatives, the socialists, and the regionalist forces in Catalonia and, and the Basque Country. Uh, this process lasted until, until the 2000s. 
And since then, there were more demands of uh, even even further decentralization. So decentralization basically meant uh, more administrative and legislative powers for the regions. And for Catalonia, it also meant, say, taking control of education, uh, uh, public media, police forces, and some taxes. So, so this meant a lot for Catalonia, in te- both in terms of political power and recognition within the, the Spanish kingdom, right? Um, this process of dynamic decentralization, uh, let's say, uh, was reviewed and, and came with, uh, with more uh, demands from Catalonia at the beginning of the 2000s. Um, there was a statute of autonomy uh, reform uh, in 2006, uh, and in 2010, the constitutional court, the Spanish constitutional court, somehow ruled on this state of autonomy and somehow decided on the final model of this uh, decentralization process, ruling that uh, some of the demands from the Catalan statute of autonomy law uh, were not acceptable within the model. Uh, this ruling was crucial because it was understood by the Catalan forces as a rejection of the Catalan self-government demands that, as we said, um, are, a historic, are a historically part of this of this uh, uh, nationalist, movement, nationalist movement in Catalonia. And since then, many regionalist forces in Catalonia, and especially, um, let's say, the, the traditional regionalist uh, party in Catalonia, and... Um, the civil society became convinced that that the the only solution was uh, demanding self-determination, meaning external self-determination, independence, right? Um, This is a historical change within the Catalan uh, political sphere. Why? Because the Catalan forces had always been, uh, let's say, more moderate in their demands. Uh, There had always been a pro-independence party, but it was a minority party within Catalonia. Oh, that's interesting. So the Catalonian regional parties intended to push for more and more devolution of powers rather than full independence until then. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Here we could discuss, and it has in fact been discussed in many academic uh, academic papers and, and, and newspapers and so on, um, if these uh, nationalist forces had ever refused the idea of independence. I think that self-determination had always, full self-determination had always been there as an aspiration. For example, many senior members of the regionalist party were uh, well-known pro-independence intellectuals or pro-independence persons. But the general, the official line of the of the Catalan regionalists was moderate and was asking for more devolution, fighting for more devolution. And, and it, it was a movement that had always adopted a, a very strategic uh, behavior. Uh, meaning that when there was a minority government in Spain that had no absolute majority in the Spanish parliament, uh, the Catalan regionalists during the 90s were always there ready to support them in exchange for uh, more uh, regional powers, right? So, so it, that was a strategic behavior. Yeah, that's a very interesting question. I know we're only talking about this for background, but I do find it interesting. I think at any point... In a political dynamic like that, when you've got a regionalist party that's arguing for some degree of increased devolution, but then stopping short of demanding independence, the question does always arise if they're doing it, as it were, in good faith. You know, do they see the devolution argument as something they actually believe in, or is it purely a way to soften up the ground for independence later? Yeah, I wouldn't frame it as a 
as a matter of good faith or, or morality, let's say. This is, this, is, this is a matter of judgment that I don't think that it, we, could, we could analyze the same thing for the dead white parties if, if they act in good faith or not. So, so I, I don't think it's a matter of morality. I think it's a matter of real politic and it's a matter of uh, how Catalan aspirations could be better fulfilled within the Spanish kingdom. Uh, and the former, the former Catalan president that uh, that was the leader of the, this regionalist party and the Catalan president for more than two decades, uh, Jordi Pujol, uh, had always been, uh, let's say, very uh, very clever in managing this uh, old aspiration that I think that every nation has of, of full independence, managing this idea that was more an ideal than a reality with a real polity within the Spanish kingdom. The Catalans were very, very, active and very supportive of the Spanish democracy uh, in the late 70s and the beginning of the 80s, uh, perhaps not, not because of, of, uh, of uh, love for, for the Bourbon family, for example, the royal family, or because of, because of being a, a Spanish nationalist, let's say, but because of a matter of uh, democratizing the system and this decentralizing the system for the benefit of, of self-rule and self-government and recognition uh, in Catalonia. So, so during that time that the Spanish model was dynamic and was still decentralizing, there was margin of maneuver for constantly demanding more uh, powers and more competencies. My reading of the situation, and that's of course, it is a matter. This is a controversial matter. Eh? But my understanding of the situation is that the 2010 ruling from the Constitutional Court—it's a very long ruling. We could go into the details, but the meaning of this ruling is that the uh, Spanish territorial model was over, was finished. There was no possibility of, let's say, more dynamic autonomy. In a sense, we already achieved the maximum level. Uh, of autonomy. At least, if this was not the meaning, uh, what, what the judges meant, that was the general interpretation in Catalonia. Yeah. And so this then led eventually to the independence referendum, which was held unilaterally, and then to the declaration of independence following that. Yeah, exactly. But that came that came much much later. Eh? Uh, that came eight years or seven years uh, later. This was a very uh, fast, but at the same time long process of uh, changing the preferences among the Catalan elites. And that's my reading again. That's my interpretation again. It was first first a bottom up process. So the, it was a civil society and, and since 2006, 2007, 2008, were pushing for the idea of what at that time was called the right to decide. The right to decide meaning self-determination. Uh, there was a wave of local uh, independence referendums that were organized by the civil society uh, in a majority of Catalan uh, municipalities. There are more than 9,000 municip 900 municipalities in Catalonia, uh, 950 or, or, or something like that. More than half of them organized autonomously organized a local independence referendum as a symbolic act claiming the right of Catalonia of, of to decide their its own future, uh, then there were um, changes, uh, changes more important changes, let's say, among the Catalan elites, and the former the former regionalists 
first, there was a last attempt uh, to offer a sort of, of fiscal agreement to Madrid and to negotiate a sort of transfer of uh, uh, taxes or, or fiscal powers for Catalonia. This was not successful. Uh, again, the, the conservative majority in Madrid at that time uh, refused this, um, this, this demand. And then these Catalan elites became convinced that the only way to find, uh, let's say, a way out or, or, a, or a, a new offer to the electorate and to the, to the Catalan people was buying this uh, bottom-up idea of full self-determination. And, and then uh, in 2012, uh, a coalition was formed. Uh, that was the first time that there was a, an openly pro-independence uh, government in Catalonia. And since then, since then, there has been a pro-independence government in Catalonia. And, and there was this Catalan uh, pro-independence government that officially changed the Catalan nationalist position for uh, yeah, independence, full independence, let's say. And since then, there was a succession of attempts to, uh, to find a legal way to uh, make the Catalans vote on independence. There, was a, there were demands to the, to the, at that time, conservative Spanish prime minister. Then there, was, there were attempts to ask for a referendum of independence to the king. Uh, there, were, there was an attempt of a, a sort of legal initiative uh, at the Catalan, a regional legal initiative at the, Cat, at the Spanish parliament. Delegation of Catalan deputies proposed this legal initiative to the Spanish parliament that was rejected. So all these initiatives were rejected. There were attempts to legislate, to pass a sort of uh, referendums law as, as the one that, that the Quebec province in Canada has. Uh, but these referendum laws were uh, judged unconstitutional by the constitutional court. It slowly became clear that what, what all the politicians knew at the beginning, that, the, that within, the, within the Spanish legal system, it was very difficult to get a legal path or a, a ref, uh, on, on a referendum of independence. And with at least with a conservative majority, and that was the case at that time, with a conservative majority in Madrid, it was it was almost impossible to negotiate this uh, this issue. Uh, we have to we have to to put that in context. We have to understand that the Spanish and Catalan society became increasingly polarized on this on this topic. This is an as everywhere. Eh? This is not a a peculiarity of the Spanish society or the Catalan society. But this topic from time to time uh, emerged in, in the Spanish politics since the 19th century. And, and the territorial issue is a very, very polarizing, a very polarizing topic in Spain. Uh, it has to be reminded that uh, during the Franco dictatorship, uh, all these expressions of, uh, of national diversity in, in Spain were obviously uh, forbidden and prosecuted. Uh, the former Catalan institutions from the Republic uh, had already been prosecuted during the civil war and the first years of the dictatorship. We find even expressions of this strong Spanish nationalism, very centralist and very unitarian Spanish nationalism in the 19th century already and even before. So, so this, is, this is a controversial, this is a very controversial issue. And, and then the, both societies, the Spanish and the Catalan, uh, became increasingly, increasingly polarized on the potential solution. This was part of the mobilization in Catalonia. So the 
part of the Catalan society, the pro-independence part, became very, very mobilized at that time. But this mobilization came with a price, dividing and polarizing the Catalan and the Spanish society. Yeah, okay. And so finally then bring us up to date where we are today with the whole situation. Yeah, the things the things stand uh, more or less where 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 they they were in 2017. So um, in 2017, this referendum that came after all these attempts of agreeing or or uh, finding political and legal solution to the situation. So came this this unilateral referendum was organized by by the civil society and and the Catalan government at that time. And as as you know, it was heavily repressed by the by the Spanish institutions. First, at the same day of the referendum, with the police and the paramilitary police, uh, the Guardia Civil and, and the Policia Nacional were mobilized against against the the citizens that were that were voting and organizing this vote. And then and then the repression came to another level when the leaders of the civil society, uh, the two leaders of the main organizations of the civil society were jailed in mid-October. And then after this uh, symbolic declaration of independence of the of the pro-independence leaders, uh, then, uh, as you know, uh, part of the Catalan government fled uh, to other countries, uh, fled to Belgium, and then the other half of the government were, were immediately prosecuted and jailed and then were convicted in a very uh, severe and, and, and contro- controversial, controversial uh, judiciary procedure that uh, ended in, in 2019. So, so this uh, mobilization phase, pro-independence mobilization phase, then came with a counter, counter-secessionist phase of repression from the state that did not, did not accept this demand and judged this demand as unconstitutional and unacceptable within the Spanish. And, and, and the leaders of this movement were uh, convicted to more than 10, 10 years of, uh, of jail and, and more than 4,000 people, um, common citizens, top civil servants and so on, have been judged uh, and accused and charged with different uh, diversity of accusations from from the Spanish government, and we are still we are still witnessing some of these judiciary procedures that are still going on uh, many years later. And this situation uh, is more or less the same, with uh, with one one important change. Uh, the important change is that when the when this conservative government in Spain came to its end and the socialist uh, party came to power, supported by some of these. Uh, Catalan pro-independence parties and, and many other uh, minority groups in the Spanish parliament, uh, this uh, socialist government in Spain took another direction, let's say, and came with a, a reconciliation agenda. And this reconciliation agenda, agenda came with an agreement, first pardoning these, uh, these politicians that Got a sort of a sort a very controversial uh, measure from the socialist government um, came with a, with a sort of pardon that allowed them to be freed from the Spanish uh, prisons on the condition that they do not uh, they do not get involved into politics. These people are banned from public office still, hmm. and so on it's the a condition kind uh, of pardon. It's yeah, yeah, it's a it's a kind. It, yeah, of course, it's it's a kind of pardon, and then we have seen all this saga that I I am not 
ready to summarize now our, uh, in the European institutions. So there are several cases now, there are several judiciary procedures and international organizations that have been denouncing what happened in Spain in this repression phase of, of, of the Spanish government and, and several rights were well um, were not uh, respected by, by by the Spanish decisions Catalan autonomy was suspended uh, for some months and basically the Spanish administration took over the Catalan institutions for almost a year uh, to control to manage the situation right um, uh, when when the, the Socialist Party came to power, uh, this uh, agenda of reconciliation came with these pardons and also with, a, with a, an idea that until now has not been uh, very successful in finding a conflict resolution procedure, but uh, came with this um, dialogue, uh, what they call Mesa de Dialogo in Spanish, so uh, a channel or a table of dialogue between, between the Spanish government and the Catalan government on, precisely on, on the territorial conflict, right? Uh, so since then, there has been this new situation. The territorial conflict is somehow frozen since then. There has been no initiative to change the Catalan autonomy in one way or another, or to organize a, a referendum on, on one or topic or another. But there is this possibility, there is this open dialogue uh, because of the because of the Spanish uh, politics, let's say, because of the of this minority government in Madrid, in fact, is a coalition government of the extreme left and the socialists. So the socialists are leading the government, Pedro Sanchez, and and then uh, his allies from the, ext the extreme left, the former party Podemos, uh, and then uh, some regionalist parties. Among them, the Catalan leftist pro-independence um, party that support them in parliament. Yeah. Thanks for that. It's a very clear explanation. And we're edging our way now, I hope, towards the question of bringing science advice and expertise into the debate. But uh, before we ask you about how exactly that's being done and such like, I'd also like to ask, do you think the political fires have subsided somewhat, like in the public mind especially? Have things cooled down? Yeah. Let me say that the conflict was so deep. Uh, I mean, in comparative terms, uh, some people would even laugh to, to, the, to the Catalan conflict uh, because, because in comparative terms, there, there, there are many cases in, in the world that, of territorial and national clashes that end up in, in, in very terrible things. In the, um, I, don't have to, I don't even have to explain it, right? So there, there are wars, there are, there are violent situations and so on. There was violence on the streets of, of Barcelona at some point and, and the Spanish police was very severe in repressing these uh, these people that were voting in the first October 2017, but uh, but still uh, remaining mostly a peaceful a peaceful uh, conflict, it has been very polarizing and very divide, divisive. So the issue remains. The issue remains there, and people are worried about this uh, this situation, both in Catalonia and the rest of Spain. But yes, of course, of course, after that. Uh, a, pan a global pandemic came uh, with the COVID-19 situation. Many other topics came into the agenda. There, there is the Ukraine war. Uh, there have been uh, very severe situations uh, concerning the climate change effects in Spain. So there are many topics on the agenda. And, and of course, this territorial situation is now uh, less salient uh, than, than it was. Let me say that this is not a bad 
entirely a bad thing. So this is prob this probably opens a window of opportunity for talking about the situation, that a situation that is still very important to many people. But now now it's probably a moment in which in which these things are I wouldn't say calm, but I would say that uh, we we took a little bit of distance. Sometimes it's just a matter of time. It's been now uh, almost six years since the 2017 events. Maybe now time to 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 take uh, take a little bit of perspective and and to talk about this. And 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 this is a window of opportunity, of course. Yeah, and it's in this context then that you've been invited to lead a committee of experts to advise. And what happens next? Yeah, exactly. It's, it's exactly in this context of reconciliation agenda from the Spanish government side and a dialogue approach from the Catalan government side, led by the leftist pro-independence party Esquerra Republicana de Catalunya, uh, that situation came to a point in which the, 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 the Catalan president judged that it was or considered that it was a good idea uh, to establish this academic committee uh, to basically to explore potentiality or, or the potential avenues of this, uh, what he calls, what the president calls a clarity agreement, inspired in this, in the language of the Canadian context, this famous Canadian uh, uh, opinion from Canadian Supreme Court on the Quebec case, that the, the, the judges use this word of clarity, meaning in, in the Quebec case, a clear demand, a clear majority majority, a clear question, right? So uh, so the Catalan president took this idea and during a parliamentary debate, he referred to the potential, a potential uh, clarity agreement with the Spanish government on the Catalan situation, taking this, this more moderate approach uh, compared to the previous unilateral approach of the pro-independence movement. And then this uh, academic commission was, was set up and was called okay. by the president. Yeah. And and who are the people on this committee? I mean, I don't need names, but like what kind of people are involved? Yeah, when we first discussed this uh, with the president, he had a, a very clear idea of the, on, on, on the composition of the commission. It had to be a commission of experts on these topics, a commission made up by uh, political scientists, but also legal experts, not a very big commission. So uh, the idea was gathering more or less seven, nine, nine experts to make them uh, plural enough and also smaller, small enough to, to, to have some discussions within the commission. Uh, another criteria, another important requirement was uh, in spite of being experts, we all have our personal opinion on the conflict. So, so the idea was setting up a commission with different views on the conflict. So, uh, not only of experts, but of experts that had a sort of intellectual position on the on the conflict uh, that that shouldn't be uh, shouldn't be the same, but it should precisely be uh, diverse. And we set up this commission uh, made up of political scientists and legal experts, uh, more theoretical, more empirical uh, scholars uh, that have different views on the future of Catalonia. Okay. And I think the big question in my mind, honestly, is why have experts? I mean, like, why is scientific expertise at all a relevant thing in this very highly charged political context? Yeah, this is 
that's a very good question, Toby. Um, I also I, I, I made this question question to myself. Uh, I posed this question to myself when I was asked for the. Even I'm, I'm a political scientist, right? But the idea the idea, and I think it's it's a good intuition, uh, was that setting up a commission of experts allows to open new horizons and to uh, get all this information uh, from comparative politics, uh, from other cases, from uh, theories, uh, from examples, from other situations that could potentially have uh, a positive impact on, on this conflict resolution approach to the, to the situation. So, so why experts? Well, uh, because experts know about this kind of conflicts from this comparative uh, perspective, and experts know uh, what has been done in other places and what are the normal or the important variables that we should take into account when we take this uh, conflict resolution approach to the situation. So the final word on a, I don't know, a potential uh, clarity agreement or a potential agreement with the Spanish government, of course, the final word and the final design of this um, solution should come from the po- from from the political arena, from the political actors. The the, the expert's role is uh, our role is writing this report, and that's why the Catalan government published five questions, five questions on uh, on the characteristics, comparative politics, actors, uh, features of re- questions, majorities, quorums of referendums. So five questions on on these topics uh, to to the experts to produce this report. And this report is should be a sort of inspiration for politicians, not a final uh, word or a final uh, look. Uh, we think that the solution is that one. Or the, so we have the, the we have the the conflict resolution magic magic idea here. No, 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 no. <laughs> yeah. But so instead, the idea is the, the report might say things like, you know, this idea was tried in such and such a country, but it didn't work so well. Or have you considered such and such because this was attempted in, I don't know, Belgium or Northern Ireland or Sudan or whatever? Yeah, exactly. OK, very good. You mentioned also a theoretical element. So is the idea that you or your colleagues could bring in, you know, some kind of theoretical frameworks from political science? I would have thought we're a bit beyond that at this stage in the political debate. Well, yes and no. Yes, because part of the big part of the reflections and the deliberations we are having as expert as experts are related to values and and theories. Theories in the sense of hypotheses or empirical theories, but theories also in the normative sense. Right? If you check, if you read the the Canadian, the Supreme Court of Canada opinion on the Quebec secession, you will see that there is a lot in terms of values and principles in there that could be a model of inspiration for other conflicts, as it has been in the last 25 years, in fact. right? Uh, we can see the principle of rule of law, the principle of democracy, the principle of federalism, the principle of respect of uh, minorities, for example. Uh, we discuss on these principles. We also discuss on the theories, the main theories of conflict resolution, the main theories on uh, of democracy. Right, a more majoritarian, a more elitist theory, or a more participative theory, and so on and so forth. Right, so there is a lot of theory in there, but of course the the answers to these questions and the report um, has also to be very practical and very uh, 
conflict resolution oriented with some some specific ideas on on how these conflicts let me say that as citizens we tend to think that our conflict is very peculiar and our conflict is unique and our conflict has nothing to do with the other conflicts in the world but that when you put on the lens of of political scientists you you certainly see some patterns and some regularities and some issues that that have to be addressed in every single conflict. Mm, it makes sense. And I can certainly see the value of it. So you, you've presented it as something that is hopefully of value to the politicians who've asked for it. And they've got to figure out then how to take it forward and use it in whatever comes next. And that makes sense. Do you think there's also like a PR, like a public relations element to this? I don't mean that necessarily even in a cynical way, in a negative way. It might genuinely be the idea that a few years down the line, or however long, the politicians will be able to say, look, we're doing our best. We've got this new solution we're working on, and this was informed by or inspired by this committee of expert advisors. So as it were, please don't just dismiss it, or don't be suspicious of our motives. Yeah, of course, of course, Toby. This is this is this was part of the, of the considerations we we had at the beginning uh, for accepting this task, right? Uh, there is, a, let's say, a legitimation or a legitimacy approach to uh, to this report, and I I think that uh, something that happens in every single report. <laughs> so every single report for the government, uh, as an expert, if you work for the government doing this report. Even if you are not part of the government, you are not a party member, you do not have any political link with the government, you know that the government will use it uh, to, to, to legitimate, to, to make uh, its final idea more legitimate. Because, as you said, because the experts said that this kind of, uh, this, uh, I don't know, this legal path or this political idea uh, is something that works, has worked in other places and so on. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, sure. But I mean, that could be taken in a, a very negative way or a, a less negative way, couldn't it? I mean, in the situation where the government clearly already has made its mind up and it simply wants the scientist to write something so that it can then say, oh, guess what? Our policy we had in the first place was the right one after all. The science proves it. Then scientists might, might rightly complain, hang on a minute, I feel used. That's not what I signed up for. But on the other hand, if a scientist feels that the input they had genuinely was helpful to the decision making you know the, the decision was improved by the inclusion of evidence then the idea of it being legitimated by science might be regarded as a very positive thing you know scientists might be yeah, happy to sign yeah, up yeah, to yeah, it. yeah exactly there are these two dimensions that i think that are not it, it's, it's not possible to separate them you have to accept that if you write a report, uh, this report will be used or will not be used. <laughs> there is also a short-term, long-term consideration. Look, uh, I think that in the short term, um, this negative dimension or potentially negative manipulative dimension c could appear. But I also think, and this has happened with very famous reports, uh, think about, for example, the, the Bouchard-Taylor report in Quebec on, on the interculturality and multiculturality. This kind, of, this kind of reports that at some point become a sort of reference for public opinion to talk about, to talk about certain... Right. And that was my next question. You'll publish it, right? Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. This is this is an important dimension. Let's say if even if the government is not using it, or even if the government is using it in something that we judge the wrong way, or I don't know, something terrible happens, or nobody cares about this. I, I don't know. Many things could happen, but but uh, this report will be will be published, 
and will be there available for the following years. Um, will this report be uh, important for public opinion, pedagogical? Well, these, the experts that we are part of this committee, we will do our best. But but uh, we don't know. I tend to think I tend to think that if the re report remains there published and accessible, um, in the long term might have even a more even a better impact than in the short term. So I'm not I'm not naive. Let's say it's a, I'm I'm a, I'm a Spanish citizen and I know Spanish politics. <laughs> I know Spanish politics and I know the whole situation and I have all the information. And as the other experts, as my colleagues know, that the short term possibilities of this report are somehow limited. Uh, politics change a lot. Party strategies change a lot. You, you have to think that the report will be there and will be published and will have an impact and will be translated from Catalan to, uh, to Castilian and into English and will be available to all the Spanish citizens. And, and, and it will be one more, let's say, intellectual exercise at the disposal of public opinion, politicians, practitioners, civil servants who knows right <laughs> yeah anyone yeah and so you've kind of got your eyes on the long term prize uh, following this argument of of the long term one potential positive impact of this of this report could can also be uh, the, the the international community in other countries that have similar conflicts that could could uh, potentially read uh, this report and say, look, the, in this place, they are basically discussing these things. And, and so, so this, is, this could be one, uh, one potential good outcome of this, of this report beyond our own, our own society. Yeah, yeah, great. And is this something you specifically have in mind? Like, are there people who've come to you and said, we, we can't wait to read your report because it'll be useful in our part of the world as well? No, this is a hope I have. <laughs> this is not a. I, I don't know for sure if this that will be the case, or or this report will be f forgotten as soon as it is translated into English. But but that's that's one that's one possibility. That's one possibility that uh, many countries are facing this. Uh, diversity issues and territorial issues not necessarily related to full independence but maybe to autonomy or diversity or or this kind of conflict so so we can 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 this report be useful to these people i don't know um it will be available yeah well fingers crossed thinking about another kind of connection to other areas of scientific advice on other topics um of course, there are many other topics where science is needed, which are also politically controversial and difficult in all sorts of ways. I mean, some not quite as dramatic, perhaps, as what we've been discussing with the Catalan independence debate. But, you know, some are that dramatic. And, and for these topics, it often arises a question of the usual term used is independence. But we could also talk maybe about neutrality, which is a, a trickier concept, but I mentioned it deliberately because he said in this case efforts have been made to make sure that experts with different views on the political situation are all included so presumably this means you have you know pro-nationalists people who are pro-independence and, and other people in between and that's one approach to trying to get the independence kind of including everyone and hoping that it balances out that way but then another approach that you often see taken is to is kind of the inverse as it were to assess scientific independence of each expert and try to exclude people who you think might bring strong partisan views into the room. Um, so, you know, to take an example, if you're advising on climate policy, you try to make sure that none of your scientists are paid by 
the fossil fuel industry or own shares in wind power or whatever. Is there any analogy to that here? Is someone checking that the committee is not being infiltrated by, you know, <laughs> undercover agent of the crown or secessionist militia or whatever? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, that could be the, that could be the case. Uh, but I think that in this, uh, what we meant by pluralism was basically on the territorial options for Catalonia, let's say. Of course, uh, we didn't ask these experts if they belong to one party or to another. But for example, none of these experts is a political leader, let's say. <laughs> this would be very strange. It would also be impossible. And I, I, I think it, it shouldn't be the case to ask these experts to be persons that are neutral on the conflict. Because this is... That's not the case. I mean, I mean, the case is basically discussing on the conflict uh, among people that have different views. First, finding some someone neutral on the conflict. It's 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 a bit a bit naive. Uh, yeah, well, especially if you're looking for experts on the conflict to to not have formed any opinion on it would be kind of odd. Yeah, exactly. Well, then, then we then you could think of a, that. That would also be a, it would be a good idea. You find I don't know a, a, a foreign experts or people that do not belong to that are not Spaniards do not belong to the Spanish society and they come from Australia and they know nothing about the case and they have no no interest on the case and so on. This is not exactly that. That's that's my interpretation of the government's idea. But this is not the the Catalan government's idea. The Catalan government's idea was setting up a commission of uh, plural uh, experts on this topic, a public commission, a public commission with a public product, a public uh, report, and this has also a sort of uh, let's say also a pedagogical dimension in the sense that for a very long time uh, there has been no discussion on the, uh, scientific or or, or reasoned discussion on the possibilities of Catalonia in the public sphere. Why? Because there is a conflict uh, in the public sphere still nowadays. Um, discussing that would basically mean that either you side with uh, Catalan pro-independence side or either either you support Spanish repression. Conflicts become very uh, very polarized, and then and then the public opinion has a lot of has, has a difficulty to discuss on reasonable or, or or middle way or compromises that could could satisfy or halfly satisfy both sides let's say and and, and, and even more importantly uh, there are no two sides when we picture the conflict we picture those in favor and those against independence but the conflict is much more complex so among those in favor of independence, especially in Catalonia, among those in favor of independence or against independence, there are many nuances. There are many gray areas uh, in which there could be a compromise uh, satisfying both the desire of uh, the right to decide and also the right of those that defend that, uh, let's say, uh, Catalonia should, should remain part of, of the Spanish kingdom. So, so, so there are here like different, uh, different points of view, right? Uh, and very diverse point of view. So, so that, that was the idea. So conflict of interest. Well, yes, of course, there, there are no political leaders in the, in the commission. This is not a political, this is an experts commission, but people have opinions. People have, uh, have positions, yeah. Yeah, and that's very logical. I mean, so to put it crudely, of the various ways that you can try to account for different interests rather than going for neutrality approach where you say nobody with an interest is allowed in the room 
you're going for like a plurality approach where you say the room must contain people with all these different interests. Yeah, think about, think about for example, think about uh, this commission set up in many countries on very, very moral issues. Uh, let's, let's say, for example, abortion. Those experts having links with the pharmacy, pharmacy products industry, of course, they should, these interests should be clear. But then we are not talking about these interests. If we talk about the, the, the moral interest, well, we should factor in the moral interest. And have people that think that, uh, I don't know, human life begins uh, in the inception moment or human life begins later. This is a very deep uh, belief that we have to factor in in, in this kind of commission, right? Uh, so by, if, you, if by interest you mean that, yes, I think that, that this is part of the commission, yeah, of course. Yeah, very good. And um, what's the timescale of all this? When do you have to produce the report? Yeah, uh, we have to produce our report by by September, by September. So it was a very tight time period. Yeah, <laughs> no kidding. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But we were also asked to produce uh, precisely because it will be public. Instead of producing a 500 pages report, we were asked to go uh, straight to answer the questions. Mm. I'm not sure that makes it any quicker or easier to do. Yeah, at the beginning we were very, very happy, but then we soon we realized that it's even worse. It's even worse because if we have to agree on something, it's easier, as you can imagine, it's easier to agree on 500 pages where everybody says like many things and everything is there than agreeing on, I don't know, uh, 50, 50 pages, right? Because the writing becomes, every single word becomes very important, right? If you can describe all the cases in depth of territorial conflicts in the world since the Second World War, then no problem. If you only have room to mention 10 cases, then which cases do you mention? That This becomes very tricky. Yeah. It reminds me of the, the supposed quote by Mark Twain. It's something like, I'm sorry, I've written you such a long letter, but I didn't have time to write you a short one. Yeah, exactly. Well, I wish you all the best. I mean, I'm grateful to you, not only for your deep expertise, but also for your frankness and openness about the situation and, and being willing to engage in this kind of conversation. I do hope that we see the fruits of your work in the coming months and years, maybe making some progress on this big political issue. Um, but in any case, in the meantime, thank you very much indeed, Professor Mark San Joma Calvet. Thank you, Toby, and thank you, thank you for inviting me to this uh, to this podcast. Thank you. The Science for Policy podcast is created by Sapea. It's produced by me, Toby Wardman, with additional research and support from Agnieszka Pietruchuk. Sapea is a consortium of Europe's academy networks representing more than 100 academies, young academies and learning societies from more than 40 countries across Europe. We're part of the European Commission's scientific advice mechanism, and as such, we're funded by the European Union. Having said that, the opinions you hear on this podcast are those of the guests, and sometimes mine, but certainly not the views of the European Commission. This music is composed by Carlo Alfredo Piatti and performed by Elisaveta Suschenko. And this last bit is particularly good. <laughs>